Welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 57. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing Fall Guys, a new party battle royale from Mediatonic and Devolver Digital. I was also really lucky to talk to Alex and Tom from Polygon Treehouse about their beautiful new adventure game called Roki, and I follow that up with a review of the game. So it's a jam-packed show, let's get to it. Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. I'm good this week and I've had a little time off of work and video games and finally made it out of the city and back down to home and as like everyone I've been cooped up in my home for months. It was great to get out and catch up with family as well as step foot in some local forests and get back to nature a little bit. I hope you're all doing well out there and staying safe. Well that's enough from my waffling intro so let's get into what I've been playing this week. So this week I've been playing and watching a whole load of Fall Guys. This is a great new party battle royale that's taken the internet by storm, so I'm going to jump into my review of that in a little bit. I've also been playing Roki, a fantastic new adventure game from Polygon Treehouse, and I had the opportunity to talk to Alex and Tom from that studio, and they told me all about the development of the game. But before we get into that, let's get into my review of Fall Guys. Twenty twenty is definitely the year we all need some silliness and some fun, and Fall Guys Ultimate Knockout provides both in spades. This is a game that will have you shouting out loud whether you've been knocked off a platform, just scraped qualification, or you're diving for that coveted crown. Fall Guys has taken the world by storm, and if you haven't played it yet, you've probably heard about it or seen it. The basic premise is you and 59 other players take on a series of assault courses and only a certain number qualify each round until the final round where the winner is declared. It's very similar to Takeshi's Castle or Total Wipeout where energetic contestants take on a series of minigames. This is a mix between a battle royale and a party game and it's a wonder that no one has thought of this formula before. The best thing is about this simple concept is that anyone can pick it up and give it a try, and unlike other battle royale games you're not going to feel bad about failing. Often in battle royale games where you have 100 players battling out for the top spot by taking out all of your opponents, there's lots of prep, looting, and then you're taken out by someone with much more skill than you very, very quickly. In Fall Guys, the balance of skill and randomness is about 50-50, and the movement of the characters is always really funny, so it's hard to be angry if you get eliminated early. It's all very fast and fluid, and when you first boot up the game you're greeted by your bean, and that's the name of the main characters in Fall Guys, and then you jump into a game right away. After a few moments of diving in where the servers find 59 other players, you're then on the start line with your other bean friends. There's an element of randomness to where you start in the first round, sometimes you're at the front, which sounds good, but sometimes you don't want to be the first one to dive headfirst into a door that just won't budge. And then sometimes you're at the back. The starting gun goes off and the beans spill forward. The controls, they're simple but effective. You can move in all directions, jump, dive and also hold on to other players. The hold button also comes in handy if you want to climb, which is needed in some rounds. There's nothing more satisfying in 2020 than running towards the finishing line, jumping and then diving to qualify for that next round when the bean next to you gets eliminated. There's a bunch of different games on the way to victory. There's a round with the fake doors where you have to guess which doors are real and which ones are fake, and then make your way to the finish line as fast as you can. There's the whirly gig where you have to cross a series of spinning platforms, and there's a seesaw round where you have to make your way across a series of platforms, and if too many beans are on one side, then you'll slide down off the platform and back to the last checkpoint. There's about 25 game modes in this initial release with the developer's media tonic, looking to add much more soon. As well as the pure racing rounds, you also have team games. The beans are split into three teams, you've got yellow, red and blue, and here you have to work together to get through to the next round. In one game you've got to grab the tails and keep hold of them as long as you can, in another round you have to gather the eggs and stop the other team from stealing yours. In one of my favourite game modes you and your team have to roll a ball to the finish line, which sounds simple until the other teams start to get in the way and then all hell breaks loose. Fall Guys is definitely going to make you shout and scream, shout yes and no! And I haven't laughed out loud this much playing a game in a long time. There's a simple joy and ridiculous nature to the game which is just pure fun. 
The gameplay is excellent, the rounds are fast, and it doesn't really matter if you get knocked out as you'll be laughing all the time anyway. As you progress through the game, you collect currencies which can be used to buy cosmetics for your bean. There's a pickle suit, a wolf suit, and a chicken suit, just to name a few. There's been crossovers with other games, and brands have been absolutely falling over themselves to get in on the action. So far, the developers have resisted the temptations of a KFC suit, but we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. As well as the cosmetics, there's a battle pass for the game, where you have rewarded currency and cosmetics, like many other games before Fall Guys. Fall Guys has taken over the internet at this point and it was the number one selling game on Steam and continues to be top of the Twitch charts. Huge streamers have picked up on this game and strats have been shared around Twitter and the wider internet on the fastest ways to complete levels. The hexagon strat is particularly funny where hexagons disappear when you step on them and if you run around in a circle you can remove all the platforms for the other beans and watch them fall to elimination. As well as the single player, you can team up with three other friends in a party and make your way through the levels where you'll either compete against each other or play the team games. And this is probably where Fall Guys does its best work when you're playing with friends and want to quick fire a few rounds to catch up with buds. The only real drawback with Fall Guys at this point is the amount of levels. After playing them a few times, you probably will have seen them all. You know, you could go back and perfect strategies for them, of course, but over a few hours of gameplay, it can feel a bit samey. There's also levels that are clearly not as good as the others, but over time I'm sure Mediatonic will figure this out. And at this point they wanted to get out the game with a small number of polished levels to start on a good platform and then iterate over time. Fall Guys has been more successful beyond the wildest dreams of the teams involved and now it's time to develop the game further. I'd love to see some kind of level voting or perhaps even a forge mode later down the line where the community could build their own levels. I'm sure that would be a tough one to figure out from the development standpoint but it would be a great feature to see. Much like Animal Crossing earlier this year, Fall Guys is the tonic that we all needed in 2020. It's silly, it'll make you laugh and it's a guaranteed good time which will have you screaming in delight or in failure. Currently it's available on PS4 and Steam and it's also really reasonably priced as well as being this month's free game on PS Plus so I definitely recommend picking it up and trying it out. Well the game was developed by Mediatonic and published by Devolver Digital. It's available on PS4 and PC and it was originally released on August the 4th 2020. Well that's it for my review of Fall Guys and next up I sat down with Alex and Tom from Polygon Treehouse to talk to them about the development of Roki. This is an adventure game based in Scandinavian folklore which will pull on your heartstrings and delight and surprise you. We spoke about the development of the game, the design philosophy as well as some tips if you're an aspiring artist looking to get into the video games industry. Well let's go to that interview now. Welcome back to This Week in Video Games, and I'm here with Tom and Alex from Polygon Treehouse. Welcome, guys. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having us. We're good, thanks. Yeah, really good. And uh, it, it must be a really, really exciting time with the recent release of uh, Roki. Exciting and busy, I'd imagine. How, how's it all been going for you? Yeah, busy is uh, a fair assessment. It is... Uh... You know, it has. It's been kind of quite an, an up and down period. Obviously, we just released some PC, but we're very hard at work, working on the kind of Mac version and the Switch version. So we're certainly not short of things to do, uh, as well as juggling kind of updates for the PC version as well. So uh, yeah, it's pretty hectic, but it's been very rewarding seeing a lot of the reviews come in and players' reactions to the game. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been great. Yeah, and there's definitely a thing where obviously we've been quite close to the game for uh, a long time, and it's there's something very terrifying and also very exciting about finally people people playing it and seeing how they react to it. Because obviously we we are you know we've played it in and out, so then to you know for people to to play it, and it's quite an emotional narrative led game to to see that that is actually. Um, that people are kind of responding to that and enjoying the story and getting emotional about the story has, has been really rewarding and we're very relieved. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must be a wonderful experience. Like it, it it's, must be hard to be objective about your own kind of creation. Uh, I think it's been in development for three years. Is that right? Three and a half. Yeah. Wow. And uh, releasing that out into the wild. But the, the reception that you've had is uh, the reviews look look 
really, really, really positive. And uh, yeah, I've I've got a second all those reviews as well. Really, really fantastic game. And uh, yeah, my my hat my hat goes off to you guys. So brilliant, brilliant job. Um, well, for those who uh, don't know um, about Roki, could you uh, could you give us a bit of an introduction to the game? Sure, John made to do it, Tom. Yeah, sorry. Um, okay. uh, so, uh, Roki is it's an adventure game inspired by Scandinavian folklore. Uh, you play as Tube, who's a young girl, and she's uh, venturing deep into the Scandinavian wilderness to find her brother Lars, who's been kidnapped by Roki. So, the the game is named after the the, the monster in the game. And um, it's an adventure game, so it's more about using your your brains uh, rather than brawn. It's an, a non-violent game. So as Tuve, you're this young girl going into the wilderness and you're meeting these misunderstood monsters. And in helping them with their their problems, you're unlocking paths deeper and, and deeper into the forest. So kind of a, kind of an explore-o-puzzle adventure game uh, rooted in in kindness, I guess. I think that was the uh, that that was the overwhelming sort of sensation I had whilst whilst playing the game. It's the story of a young girl looking looking for her brother and trying to save her brother, but she's really really kind along the way to all the um, if uh, you know there might be a troll or something who's got like a thorn stuck in his shoulder. It's like you say the the overwhelming sense of kindness in the game is really 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 wonderful. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us, um, Tom, maybe you could answer this one, um, a bit more about your approach to the kind of um, design of the systems in the game. One of the things I found really refreshing was uh, how sort of unobtrusive and logical uh, the systems felt. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, good good question. Um, well, I think kind of rolling back to when we started, when we were thinking about what kind of game to make, we, I think we were both keen to try and make a modern day version of, of some of the kind of games we played as kids, classic adventure games like Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle and stuff like that. So there was a lot of us thinking about how could we make a contemporary version of that and what could we do. So a few of the things we found quite early on that worked really well were like notionally actually directly controlling Tube instead of kind of clicking on the path where we wanted her to go. We found actually controlling her either with keyboard and mouse or, or, or with a controller actually gave you a really good connection to her. And because all the, the geometry is actually in 3D, it allows you to move around the world and really feel like you're exploring with her. Um, and I think that actually then allows you to interact with the world in a very natural way, which stops us having to be like really super obvious with things. So like you said, I think it allows us to, to not be so intrusive. And what we try to do with the kind of design in the game is to have objects that logically make sense in the world that she interacts with and, you know, picks up at times and then have the things you do with them make sense as well. So that you know you're combining objects that you would combine in real life, and it's not like a really kind of esoteric solution to a, a puzzle. Um, so that was kind of the foundations we looked at, and we actually one of the key things for us was that we wanted people to have a challenge, but not get to the point where they were just super frustrated and had to look it up. We wanted them to actually be able to get through the game and enjoy it and get that kind of positive buzz you get from solving a puzzle, but without it being like deliberately frustrating and hard. Uh, the balance to that is obviously you do need some challenge and so our, our solution to that and again to, to try and do it in a way that was kind of not cluttering up the screen or adding in loads of extra UI um, we try and do it by letting the characters in the game either give you information about what you need to do uh, so there's a, a good example of that there's a character called the Tree of Eyes who you, you meet quite early on who's like an all-seeing being who you can go back to throughout the game, who give you hints and, and based on your progress in the game will actually tell you potentially where to go next and, and course correct you if you need to. Um, we also have a, an option to flash objects if you've missed anything, so that can kind of be used as a, a catch-all situation. Uh, and then lastly, one of the things we introduced about halfway in the project, which I think adds a, a lot and we could talk about for quite a long time, but I'll give you the, the, the short version. We added a two-edged journal, which is like, almost like a school book that she carries around and make notes in. 
and those notes are stuff the player can refer back to as kind of soft clues for things that they might have missed or, or reminders. Um, so I think that when you put all those things together, it actually creates a suite of stuff that isn't ever present. It's something that the, that the player can choose to engage with if they want to or completely ignore. But if they do choose to engage with it, it can help them to, to progress further. Um, and that was kind of our ethos to, to not cater, um, to not treat everyone like they or kind of at the, the base level and, and uh, overload everyone with information is to go actually let's treat everyone kind of on a minimal level and give people the information there to find out if they want to. It's, uh, it, it all it all comes together really, 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 really nicely. And when you were talking there, I was, I was actually thinking about the notebook because you've got a lot of, um, as well as the beautiful world that you've crafted sort of visually um, from an audio perspective as well. I think it's really uh, cleverly done because um, as um, Tove kind of scribbles in the notebook, you can hear that kind of scribbling as, as she's going and the positive reinforcement of the, the chimes when you kind of get a, a puzzle correct. I think, I think it's brilliant. Um, one thing I, I did want to ask about was um, it, I, I sort of touched on the, the kind of the beautiful um, looking world but when you sort of scratch under the surface of the story, it, it, there's a little bit of sort of darkness there. Um, how do you how do you get that balance right between the the light and the dark? I guess. Well, uh, it's a tricky one. So we knew that we wanted to tell this, uh, tell this. Yeah, that's the end of the answer. It's tricky. <laughs> Just hard. Yeah. Uh, it is very tricky. So we knew we wanted to tell this emotional story, and actually the. The bones of the story have been there from the start, from basically the inception of the very early days of the, the project. We've worked with writers, uh, narrative designers, Sam, uh, Danny, and Emma to help hone and refine it. Uh, but it, it is a, a story that, um, yeah, that has quite a lot of emotion attached to it. And I think one of the things that we were very careful of is that we didn't want the game to feel like really, just really sad to, to play because obviously there are some really poignant moments in it. So I think with the music and with uh, Ingvild's performances too, very, um, and I think in some, with some of the kind of monsters you meet as well, there there's always um, relief there and, uh, and uh, you know, to, to balance out some of the, the serious, um, the serious like themes that we're, we're tackling. And we also have, um, because it's a very narrative game, but we also have lots of, breathing space for players to reflect on things. So rather than being like wall-to-wall story where you're just constantly, you know, being, you're stepping through story beat after story beat after story beat, the, the forest is like quite a big place. So actually there's moments for the player to, to to run from location to collation, kind of collect their thoughts with the beautiful music and the scenery. So, yeah, it's a difficult one. One of, the things, one of the tests we tried early on, we were looking to get the right tone with the music. So we, we both... Um, we did a test with the music from the, the motion picture, the fountain, which we, we both listened to the soundtrack and we're like, this is before we had a composer. We're like, this was, this is kind of like a really good tonal fit. And the music was beautiful. We're like, let's just, let's just, you know, let's play it on the, on the CD. So old, old fashioned and, um, and see what it's like as you're running around the forest. It was just really depressing because <laughs> the music, was, <laughs> the music you know, it was good, but it was like so sad. So there was definitely, we did, we did some tests early on to find, to strike, that balance of a welcoming place you want to come and explore that's exciting to explore but also um tackling those serious themes i like to just jump on that kind of fountain test that we did i think one of the things we learned was that you, you need to give yourself somewhere to go so if you start at a point that is already quite bleak it's like you've really got to do some stuff to make it go even you know darker and we will and actually you get to a point where i think people just kind of shut up. It's a bit like Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones where you're like, well, everyone's just dead, so I don't care anymore. It's like, spoiler, sorry. Um, <laughs> pretty sure everyone in the world seen it. Um, but it was like, you know, actually it's better to start at a place that is either kind of on a, 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 an average level or perhaps slightly happier with two ways disposition. She's quite optimistic and a forceful character. It then makes the, the, the moments where she's sad or scared even more poignant because it's slightly more out of character um, and it really accentuates them. So I think that's the kind of way we, we try to approach it. And I, I think it's been successful for that. 
And um, Tom, you touched on the kind of the, the puzzle design earlier and finding that balance between you want to provide a bit of a challenge but not make it too tough. Is there quite a lengthy sort of testing process that goes into that or um, how do you sort of judge the, the level um, just right? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was interesting because we're both from a, an art background. So we've been involved with design on games before, but not explicitly like we're doing the design. So that was um, a challenge in itself, uh, particularly coming up with item-based puzzles because then you it's quite hard to gauge whether it's it's difficult or not because you instantly know the answer. It's not like a skill-based thing where you can be like, oh, okay, I can kind of judge that a bit. Um, so what we tended to do was actually kind of design. We, we talk about like, well, this is the general gameplay we want for an area, but the specifics of that we then either you know one of us would go away and try and come up with an actual puzzle and do that in seclusion and then let the others play it so that we could kind of get a, a sense of like which bits were challenging in a good way which bits were just obtuse and didn't make sense and you can't be like enough people and it actually doesn't need to be a huge sample size and needs to be like three or four if all of them go oh, i just didn't realize you could do that and it's not like, well, actually that bit just doesn't work that's the thing you need to change um so we kind of just did a lot of that very quickly and and kept refining things um and then ultimately we started to get a bit of a sense for how things worked and one of the rules we had um when we started to to get more comfortable with the design was that two i always needed to have things in a backpack when you get to a point in the game where you've only got a couple of items that actually isn't isn't great because it limits player choice. You actually want her to have several things so that if the player gets stuck on a certain puzzle, they can go and resolve something else. So we, we always tried to have these kind of micro loops that would then feed into these bigger quests just to keep up that momentum. Um, and then one of the, the other things we added as well, because the, the middle get, middle part of the game is quite big, you're in this forest and we wanted this sense of exploration and her going to all these different locations. Um, Unfortunately, she's just tasked with running around the forest and she's pretty fit, but she's not like she's got a, a motorbike that she can razz around on her. So <laughs> we, we got to a point where, you know, we'd have an item in a certain place and then, you know, she'd go through other locations, but then need to backtrack. And we were aware that might become onerous for the player. So we introduced a, uh, introduced a fast travel system through uh, this kind of these magic doors that appear in, in trees throughout the world. And you, in the first pass, you, you, your job is to unlock them and, and reunite them with the mother tree. And then you can use them as these kind of fast travel portals, almost like you're going through the routeways uh, into different locations. And that actually worked really well. So as you progress, you can actually then start zapping back between locations as you need to. Uh, and so, yeah, I think all, all of those things combined actually hopefully keep the, the pace up. And judging from what people have said, like no one has got super stuck i think everyone has their own uh kind of favorites and and you know puzzles that they're, they're not so keen on but i think that's going, always going to be the way I mean, we're the same internally uh but so far i don't think anyone's got like super stuck to the point where they're you know mashing their controller against the the screen which is good <laughs> and, and so when i when i was playing the game it kind of reminded me of uh, like Edie Blyton, Faraway Tree, kind of uh, old, um, I guess, British sort of uh, children's stories. Um, what was your inspiration um, behind the game? What, what were the sort of stories that you thought of? And um, how did you sort of come across this um, Scandinavian kind of uh, fairy tale? Uh, so there was one key thing. I think we uh, we had a few different ideas floating around for what what setting or, you know and who you'll be playing as in these different adventure games we were thinking of and then tom stumbled across uh the scandinavian folklore and it was some of the creatures and it wasn't really the kind of gods like thor and odin it was more the creepy creatures <clears throat> and there was, it was like a beastery of all these different creatures and they were so strange and odd um that they really just captivated us and we were like, oh, we really imagined building a cast of characters like, by cherry picking our favorites and reimagining them. And then we half kind of remembered a episode of the Moomins from when we were kids, the cartoon. 
um, or we saw an article of it, but there's something but it's one of those really terrifying children's cartoon or a story from a children's cartoon. You watch and it's made, it was sort of burnt into your, into your memory where there's a character called the Groke and it's this character that's just freezes everything it comes close to and it's very slowly, ominously walking towards the, the village or the house where the, the Moomin family live and it's just freezing everything, including people. Um, so it's quite it's really an unblinking monster, terrifying. Um, especially for kids, but it turns out it just wants a friend. Um, but it's just as it, as it walks towards things, it's freezing them. And it was that there's something in that it's quite scary, um, but actually it's quite tragic uh, that there's something in that, okay, it's a monster, but actually it has a humanity to it. And I think that was one of the key, like, tonal jumping off points of misunderstood monsters. And Tuve, as a young girl, being able to look past their monstrous appearance and seeing the uh, humanity underneath, that was the, the kind of one of the really the, the key jumping off points for the project. It, 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 came, together, it came together really, really well. And uh, I was wondering, what was, what was one thing in the development of the game that was much easier than you, than you thought it was going to be? Maybe you went in sort of thinking it was going to be quite difficult, but then actually it turned out to be uh, not too bad. <laughs> um, I mean, in some ways, the, the art was comfortable for us because that's our, our background. So I think we always had confidence that w we could realise the, the vision that we wanted to and we could make a kind of epic-looking game but with a, a small team. So, I mean, I wouldn't... <laughs> I'd, I'd be cautious to say any part of it was you know, easy. Uh, but that that bit i think was certainly kind of in our wheelhouse uh, and compared to to other things um but i guess the the flip side of that one of the things that i think perhaps we thought would be straightforward that just wasn't at all was coming up with a style for the inventory system and the the items within that um because again that was, it was an art thing so we were like okay well that that should be really straightforward but actually trying to come up with a style for all these things that Tubo picks up and they sit in an inventory bar at the top of the screen when you open her backpack. Um, originally, we kind of tried to match the style of the game, but then they didn't stand out enough. And because they were smaller items, they needed more detail. So we tried to draw them as well, but it wasn't quite right. And actually, when we realized how many items there were as well, it was slightly overwhelming. Uh, and then actually what we did, we, we found um, an illustrator called Bodhi Hartley, um, who's got kind of a quite a childlike style. We contacted him and managed to secure him to do some tests and, and put some of his work in that kind of instantly fit really well. It, it, because it was a different style, it actually stood out on its own right and felt very tactile. Um, and so he went on to then do all the artwork for the journal as well. Uh, and in essence, we kind of imagined it like it was, it was Tubo drawing the things in the journal and it actually sits with our art style really nicely. So that was a kind of a happy conclusion, but it was quite a, a journey to get to that point. What, what, what about you, Alex? What was, what was one of the sort of maybe one of the easier things and the harder things of uh, the development of the, of the game? Like I said, Tom said, I think I wouldn't say any of it was particularly easy. I think one of the bits that, uh, <laughs> uh, that I once we got doing it i found easy and really enjoyed was all the um was all the kind of uh emotive animations for the characters like uh i think that's that all the characters and the animation stuff and i think it uh work with the art style that we have and working the way that we did it was basically a real delight and really fast to iterate on you know creating the big library of animations for two when she's happy or she's sad or she's determined and i think that stuff even though sometimes she can quite small on screen. I think the selling of that emotion combined with Ingvild stuff. I mean, that is, to be fair, that is um, one of the things that was added uh, was Ingvild's voice work, which was um, once we found the right person, that um, it's kind of, it was like flicking a switch, right? It made all my animation work much easier because we had this amazing, like, emotive voiceover work to, to, to help with. And also it, it lent such a warmth to the whole game, um, that was really great. And obviously, a shout out to, um, I was going to say Henrik, uh, Shetland and Ida, uh, who, yeah, who did the, uh, 
the other voice work. So yeah, we had all like Scandinavian actors to help with the the voice. It was a small small cast. Um, but yeah, I think that that stuff just really elevated everything and gives it a um, a real a real warmth. So I think in terms of like value, the the VO and the emote stuff was really really um, like a a lightning bolt. Um, and yeah, as far as, as far as like the the stuff that was a very you know quick for us to iterate on and and added a lot of motion the animation stuff which I've said it's kind of my passion project I really enjoy that stuff so I noticed on your website as well that you you do a bit of a deep dive Alex into the uh, on your blog on the uh, and people can go and check it out on I think it's polygontreehouse.com um you you go into a little bit more detail about the the, the animation and for all the characters and uh, some so I noticed that and thought that was really fantastic Cool. Yeah, I think we haven't done, like, at the start of the project for the first couple of years, we did blogs quite a lot. Um, uh, yeah, and the and they've been really fun to do. I think what I find really powerful, I'm a big fan of Nintendo, and I think in some ways, as everyone is, right, um, but I think there's a really exciting thing about Nintendo, how uh, they have this principle of taking very simple things, like from a design point of view, and laying them up to get quite complex and sophisticated results. And I think with the and the animation stuff and all that setup is, is the same. It's actually you know, each thing in itself is quite simple, like how we're doing the, the face shapes or what we do with the, the VO. That each each thing on its own is quite simple, but in layering them up, you can get this you know quite a feeling of um, of sophistication uh, and kind of almost intelligence within the characters. That um, yeah, I think that's the the magic of, of, of character design animation, where suddenly you've got some polygons that suddenly feel like they're alive and that's kind of cool i definitely recommend um, going or everyone out there going to the blog and checking out it's really really good uh i absolutely love the game guys and uh, so how um how can players get their hands on the game so it is now available to buy on steam and uh, gog for pc uh, we're working on a Mac version of that as well. And then in the not too distant future, I'm still working on the exact dates, it will be available on Nintendo Switch as well. Uh, so plenty of choice there. And as a uh, Nintendo fan, uh, Alex, you must be really excited about releasing uh, something on Nintendo Switch. Yeah, totally. It's really exciting. And all my friends keep on asking me about it. <laughs> so, uh, but I play, I play, uh, I play a lot of my games on on Switch now. So I was, I'm, I'm really excited. And Nintendo featured us, and it was last year at Gamescom as part of their first indie world presentation. So that was, um, yeah, that was that was really exciting, and it feels like a it feels like a um, a really good a really good fit. So yeah, so we're we're looking forward to announcing the date for that soon. If people want to keep up to date with the news, our Twitter handle is at Polytreehouse. And we tend to make all our new announcements around there, so people are welcome to to drop in. Brilliant. I'll stick a link uh, to the game uh, on Steam and uh, your social media down in the description and the show notes of the podcast. I wanted to move slightly away from the game and talk about Polygon Treehouse, and um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit of bit about yourselves and how you came to sort of form the studio. Tom, maybe you could kick us off on that one. Yeah, sure. Well, we're both old. Uh, let's get that out there to start with. Um, so we, we were both at uni together in the kind of at the turn of the century. <laughs> um, and then after that, we both got jobs at Sony uh, as kind of lowly junior artists, but worked our way up within the studios uh, in Cambridge, went through the transition where it, it became uh, a part of the Guerrilla Studio franchise, uh, so we worked on things like Killzone, uh, and then finished up there as art directors at the studio. Uh, and our last game was a game called Riggs on uh, PlayStation VR. So we had like loads of experience with different projects on different pieces of hardware, uh, which was like a really good learning experience. But then sadly, the studio shut in 2017. Uh, and so we were faced with the, you know, big question of what do we do next? Do we go and get another studio role? Um, I think we both had a bit of an itch we wanted to, to scratch and we're in a similar position. I know actually 
been away from making art content for a while because we, we were leading teams. Um, so we thought, actually, why not try something by ourselves? Uh, and because things are so much different now from when we were at uni, you know, like we were there, it costs a lot to, you know, buy software and uh, the, the thought of just making your own game from scratch was, it, it just wouldn't have happened. But now, actually, because so much is either free or, or kind of monthly subscriptions and we use Unity, we use something called Adventure Creator in Unity that does a lot of the code work for us. Um, so we were able to get something up and running super quickly and it kind of just went from there, as Alex said earlier, about how we found the idea for the game and the story. And, and you know, we, we, we set up the studio to, to make a game that we were, I guess, very close to and could be something that we were, you know, really proud of that was uniquely ours. Uh, not to say that we weren't proud of games we worked on at Sony, but I think they were obviously the product of far larger teams and done for for different audiences whereas i think this was kind of more of a a, a love project in some ways um and i think hopefully if people play that that will come across as well in the kind of handcrafted nature of it and what's the um i, I imagine there's a huge difference from working at guerrilla games and sony to working your own kind of studio and uh, what's what's the sort of um one thing that you've learned from that transition that perhaps if, uh, if your younger self came and asked you a question um, in 2016 about opening a studio, um, what what advice do you think you'd maybe give them? Uh, probably the importance of air conditioning. <laughs> 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 no, it's uh, in, this week that has been an issue, but uh, I think actually there's a lot of similarities. Like the 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 principles of, of problem solving are the same. I think actually our time at Sony and Gorilla and looking at art techniques and working smartly, uh, they're all things that that are, you know carried over. Um, I think probably where our experience stood us in good stead was that we you know we knew to cut that we were going to have to cut our cloth early on in defining an art style where we could make. Uh, we couldn't use a photorealistic art style and actually you know, we wanted something that was, that was quicker to iterate on and and, and fun to fun to work with. So I think we that experience um, at Sony really in, in influenced and instructed and laid the foundations for what we did as indies, even though you know, the art styles are miles apart, the principles, the creative principles and the problem solving of of like time cost and quality they're all uh they're all kind of the same they're, they're all the same um yeah so i'm not sure like um yeah i think maybe there's some stuff with like the mostly making the game is just part of being an indie developer you have all the events and stuff like that as well so i think there's probably a try back in time and go like you know it's not just the game you're making there's all these other bits around it but actually we found that the indie community has been really, really generous and very open. Obviously, working at big studios and big studios have to be quite secretive about what they're doing, quite right, you know, quite rightly so. Um, I'd say it's been something quite, uh, it's been a nice life experience to go to the indie stuff where you can just, you know, we should be shared from an early point because we have to raise the visibility of our game. So we, you know, we're shouting about our game and sharing animation tests and concept arts from quite an early, early stage, which has been really refreshing to us and to have people give us feedback or you know collaborating with different people has been been really nice so yeah there's lots of differences but actually quite a lot of similarities as well so they're not a million million miles apart and in in the studio um how do you go about kind of coming up with ideas for for new projects it, it sounds like um Roki was um a sort of a long a long-term project you've been working on for a long time do you do you do a lot of prototyping or do you have quite a kind of clear vision about what you want to do and stick to that? What's your sort of, what's your method? Well, the, yeah, I mean, the Roki one was interesting. So we, um, I think we quite quickly in some ways found a story that interested us, as, as Alex mentioned, and didn't have to go through a kind of exhaustive process of, of trying to come up with different ideas and pushing them forwards we were like in some ways i think you know deep down where there's something that inspires you and motivates you and actually when you're a small team it's much easier because you don't have to get all these different people to buy into it 
So some of it for us was like, oh, okay, well, this this feels interesting to us. It will be interesting to other people. Um, and then actually, instead of, and I'm, I'm not saying it's the right way to do it, it just suited our circumstances at the time um, because we wanted to actually generate some exposure after leaving Gorilla. We uh, kind of did a proof of concept, but did it as a trailer. Uh, and, that, and, and that suited us as well because it was art-led. Uh, and that actually allowed us in probably about a month to come up with a style that worked and work out what our kind of main character looked like and the world and, and tease that a bit. And obviously the game's evolved since then uh, for the better, I think. But uh, uh, if you look back at that, which was released kind of uh, like May, June 2017, um, there's a lot of things that have carried over from that. So that would, <laughs> and the the kind of, hack that that provided was it was out there and it put a flag in the sand as to say like, okay this is kind of what the game looks like and is about which meant we then couldn't fiddle around with lots of different ideas or, or feature creep or anything it was like oh, we've kind of committed to this now um which is actually very useful and going like we've drawn some lines in the sand now let's obviously work out what the story is properly and flesh that out and see how that ties into the design and i think that process is is longer, uh, obviously, but that's where I think, as I said, some of our experience came into play. Where you, you, you tend to approach things and like uh, almost visualize it like circle, concentric circles. You start off kind of quite broad and wide, and, and as you progress, you produce tighter and tighter circles because you're getting closer to the kind of core thing um, and making sure that you're constantly testing and playing and holding stuff up against the. the pillars you you set out uh, when you started making the game to make sure it still aligns with the things you want it to and also being yeah so being honest if things don't work that you cut them uh making sure that i think something we learned at sony was the kind of notion of failing fast so that it, it's okay to not use something actually finding out that something isn't very good is actually quite valuable it doesn't have to be perceived as a negative thing because um, it can help you get to something that is really good and, and that's kind of an ethos we've carried through. So, that, you know, there's been scenes and, you know, decent amount of work that hasn't made the game, but that's good because everything there now is, is better for that because it became, a, it, it's there as a product of us playing those things, realising they didn't quite work and then that being a, a stepping stone to something new. Um, sorry, I've slightly gone off piece with my answer, but like it's in, in, in a way of like, how we've developed the game and what our processes are that's kind of some of uh, some of what we've done and um so what's next for the studio i know you're you're kind of you'll be developing the nintendo switch version um are you coming up with ideas for your next project or are you are you are you, are you deep into the next project or are you gonna have a holiday no. <laughs> i think a break a break is good i'm going off to the uh deepest darkish welsh mountains for uh, a little while next month but i think the um yeah the switch version is something we're we are really passionate about so that's the kind of one that we're really focusing on at the moment i think for not to say too much about future stuff but i think one of the things we're keen on doing is the the, the reception of in terms of like the studio and what the studio is and its identity i think the the reception to the the, the narrative storytelling of the studio and also the kind of uh emotive aspect of that is something that we've been um yeah delighted with and i think that's something we're interested in exploring that kind of you know narrative adventures and um with a touch of kindness and emotion i think it's something that we find an area that we find quite exciting and that people seem very receptive to so um yeah we shall see and um I was interested if um, sort of a, a young aspiring artist sort of uh, came to you and said, oh, you know, uh, you know, how would I go about sort of breaking into making video games? I was wondering if you had any advice for for questions or for people like that. Well, I mean, I kind of touched on it loosely earlier in a while. Like we had to go through the system, so to speak, when we did it. And you left school and go to university and do a course and then, you know, create a portfolio and get a job. I think now actually there's far more freedom for either just getting Unity or, um, you know, another 
another um, engine to use, like Unreal or something, and doing stuff in that, either kind of create your own game from scratch using something you can get off the store or just make a scene using some assets you can get off the store and just experiment. Um, and actually, there's so many sites out there now and like with social media, there's things like ArtStation and you know, there's concept art sites and stuff. So there's places you can go where you can look at what the best people are doing. You know, if you like Naughty Dog games, for example, you can go onto ArtStation and find some of their artists and see all the assets that you they've made and go, right, okay, well, I want a job there. That's the benchmark. What software have they used? How have they done it? And actually kind of create a much more streamlined way of, of leveling yourself up. Um, I think we learn in a very broad way, which is also useful, but um, things are so competitive now. I think if you, if you know, like your, your example, it's already a great starting point. If you know you kind of want to be a games artist and particularly there's an aspect of games art you like, um, I think focusing on that and, and kind of really learning your trade on that is a great way to go and, and just be honest about your kind of portfolio and where your strengths are. And, and put it up for peer review on, on blogs and things like that. Um, yeah, that'd be my advice. I think you know, going to university as well is a great thing to do, but it's not for everyone and it's obviously expensive. Uh, so I, I think there are lots of different options now. I think Tom's right. They're trying to work out what it is that you're passionate about and what it is that you want to focus on is almost like the first step because like, you can get a bit swamped in the, the possibilities. So I think having some idea... Like trying a few things out and seeing what what you enjoy and what you like, um, and then kind of going from there. Because sometimes, like the in the bigger studios, the roles are very specialised, right? Um, obviously, the indie stuff is is broader, but I think you've got to, you know people have got to try a few things out and see see what it is they want to do and what what they get excited by. And uh, with all the creating games that you do, do, do you actually get to play games at all in your spare time? Yeah, we, Alex probably plays more than me, but I, I try and play something with my son. So I'm playing uh, playing Cuphead at the moment, two-player with him, which is uh, a very good test for both of us in terms of our patience. <laughs> uh, doing pretty well. We're pers- persevering. Uh, but it is really, really good. I'm still really enjoying it. It's just really, really hard. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's been a lot of fun recently. Yeah, and I'm like... A- I tend to. I've got a real soft spot for uh, from software games. I haven't played them for a little while. I think actually, I like even though I'm terrible at them. I always try and find ways of like tricking the system, and like so I can just be really crap at the game, uh, but then still get through. But I think there's something I really like that the storytelling in those games and how uh, it's like you're gradually uncovering these worlds. But aside from that, I think I'm play- replaying through Night in the Woods at the moment and playing. Coffee talk on Switch and also Carrion. I'm kind of a little bit lost in, but I was still quite enjoying yeah. going around. Great, yeah, really good, really good. And I think from like an animation and motion design point of view, I could just watch that weird tentacle blob <laughs> roll around the research facility all day. It's just really, um, it's like just really delightful and and, uh, and fun to just move around, which is which is great. It's really good. So yeah, I tend to, but like both of us, our, our diet of games tends to be quite broad. We don't really play. Um, a specific type. I think it's good to have broad tastes, not just in games and like cinema and literature as well. You want to have a a broad uh, pot of inspiration to to draw from. So that's another thing I'd recommend for like any aspiring games artists. Like, don't just draw your inspiration from games or like a narrow section of games. Like, try and you know have you know have your inspirations being really wide in terms of you know world cinema, different types of art. Um, yeah, it's really good to stop people's work being like generic to have a, a wide pool of influences. It's really important. You know, what I'd add to that as well. I mean, it's kind of a, a, my own personal drum, but I think reading is really good for that kind of stuff. Just reading books, uh, like, you know, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy or something like that, because it actually will stop you like directly, almost subconsciously copying an image without realizing it like books you have to imagine it yourself it's in your own mind so it's kind of creative and gives you ideas but then how you express that i think is still kind of very unique to you so um i think that's something that has certainly helped me uh, over the years is reading a lot that's brilliant well 
Guys, I've taken up loads of your time today, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on This Week in Video Games. And I definitely recommend everyone go out there and grab Roki now. It's available on Steam and uh, coming soon to uh, other platforms too. But yeah, once again, guys, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, yeah, I'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was me there talking to Alex and Tom from Polygon Treehouse. And thanks again, guys, for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us on This Week in Video Games. Really, really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best and all the success for Roki. So talking of Roki, next up, let's go over to my review of that game. Roki isn't quite what it appears to be at first glance. On the surface, this is a beautiful point-and-click adventure game bathed in Scandinavian folklore, but scratch under the surface and you'll definitely find a little bit of darkness. It's a game full of magical creatures, adventure, but it's also about dealing with life's hardships too. Prepare yourself for a heartfelt tale of family, love and mystery as you explore frozen forests in this exquisite adventure from Polygon Treehouse. The game starts out with you as Tove, with her younger brother Lars playing hide-and-seek amongst the snow-covered wilderness just outside their house. They're clearly having fun, but it's dinner time, and Tove is hungry, so she does her very best to get her energy-filled brother back to the house in one piece. Father is asleep by the fire and you have to cook dinner, and eggs are the only thing left in the cupboard. Clearly, the family has been through some tough times, as mother is nowhere to be seen, and Tove looks slightly worn down. After a bedtime story, something big comes crawling out of the forest and steals away Tove's younger brother. Then it's time to find out who, or what, has come for them and restore some kind of normality to their lives. A rich history is weaved in the first hour of the game. We are introduced to a series of characters in books, legends who once looked over and protected the forest. We're given a slight glimpse of the sad background of Tove and her family, all against the backdrop of beautiful music and graphics that draw you into the lore of the game. It's all really inviting, like a comfy chair next to a roaring fireplace. Once you've made your escape from your initial encounter with this new, dreamlike danger, then the world comes alive. Ravens, statues and the landscape itself brings a vibrance to your exploring. There's trolls, an all-seeing tree and secrets around every turn. Roki is a point-and-click adventure game and you're introduced to the mechanics very early on in your adventure, taking care of your little brother and making sure dinner is on the table and there's enough firewood burning to keep father warm while he gently rocks to sleep in his chair. There's the classic gathering of items in your inventory in various combinations, but it feels smoother than other recent point-and-click adventure games I've played. Each item has its logical next step and I didn't feel the need to sweep the screen for something to interact with. This is helped by a great system where you can press a button or key to identify areas on the screen that you can interact with. And this really helped with reducing the sometimes frustrating experience of other games in this genre. The central inventory system keeps things nice and simple where you can either combine items with one another or drag them onto the environment. The audio design in the game does a great job of positive reinforcement here when it comes to your inventory, with a satisfying chime when you get something right, or when Tove scribbles something in her notebook. The puzzles found here in Roki are never too obtuse as you work your way towards a goal. There's normally one or more mystery on the go at one time, and there's a sense of innocence and positivity to the game that feels really rare. This is the story of a little girl trying to save her brother and do all she can to help the creatures that she meets along the way. The game is split into three chapters and in the second chapter you get some handy hints from the tree of many, making the puzzles even less of an issue. There's also a really handy fast travel system here, but unfortunately that system doesn't last throughout the roughly 10 hour adventure. The whole inventory system works beautifully well together. Tove has a map of the local area as well as the notes she takes along the way. There's loot to collect like bugs and scraps found on the floor, which she carefully adds to a notebook as loot, and you also have badges to show off your achievements. The UI in this game is complimentary and definitely doesn't get in your way. The graphics and the audio complement each other well and the world is absolutely beautiful. Snow-covered trees and caves and ice glisten around every turn, and the music offers a bright and breezy upbeat soundtrack to an otherwise sometimes sad and lonely adventure. 
This is a game where the narrative takes centre stage and everything else complements it rather than adding obstruction. The controls and the systems made gliding through this game a breeze which sets you up nicely for the hard-hitting story of folklore, family and love. The mystical fantasy that's weaved around Tove sometimes mirrors that of her family life, but to go into any more detail would be encroaching on spoiler territory. The biggest compliment I can give this game is you should definitely play it. It's available on PC and it's one of the most engrossing stories I've played in some time. Roki is a game that would delight and surprise and I definitely recommend giving it a try today. The game was developed by Polygon Treehouse and published by United Label. It's available on PC and was originally released on the 23rd of July 2020. Well that's it for my review of Roki and really really impressed and definitely go out there and give it a try. But next up let's have a look at the all platform charts. Well at number 10 this week we got 51 worldwide games and that's up two places from last week's number 12. Number 9 this week it's Ring Fit Adventure, again up two places from last week's number 11. Number 8 this week it's Grand Theft Auto 5, up one place from last week's number 9. Number 7 this week it's Paper Mario The Origami King, down one place from last week's number 6. Number 6 this week it's F1 2020, down one place from last week's number 5. And at 5 this week it's Minecraft, up five places from last week's number 10. Number 4 this week it's FIFA 20, up 15 places from last week's number 19. And number 3 this week it's our old friend Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, up one place from last week's number 4. And number 2 this week it's Ghost of Tsushima, down one place from last week's number 1. And in again at number 1 it's Animal Crossing New Horizons, up one place from last week's number 2. And Animal Crossing New Horizons doing absolutely fantastically for Nintendo. So congrats to Nintendo and the team on regaining the number 1 spot this week. Well that's it for the charts this week and next up let's have a look at what we got coming out in the next few weeks. So on the 18th of August we've got Microsoft Flight Simulator, that's coming out on PC. We've got Mortal Shell, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. We've got Pathfinder Kingmaker, that's coming out on PS4 and Xbox One. And finally on the 18th we've got Rogue Legacy 2, that's coming out on PC. Then on August the 20th we've got Battletoads, that's on Xbox One and PC. We've got Grief Helm coming out on PC. And finally on the 20th we've got Pastel Blind Karma, also coming out on PC. Then on the 21st of August we've got Okana, Four Rhythms Across the Blue, that's coming out on PS4 and Switch. And we've got New Super Lucky's Tale, coming out on PS4 and Xbox One. Finally on the 21st we've got PGA Tour 2K21, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch, Stadia and PC. Then on the 25th of August we've got Descenders, coming out on PS4. We've got Insurgency Sandstorm, that's coming out on PS4 and Xbox One. We've got No Straight Roads, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And we've got Street Power Soccer, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Finally on August the 25th we've got Vader Immortal, coming out on PSVR. Then on August the 27th we've got Best Friend Forever, coming out on Switch and PC. We've got Control, the AWE DLC, coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. We've got Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles Remastered Edition, coming out on PS4 and Switch. We've got Still Strand, that's PC, iOS and Android. Surgeon Simulator 2, that's coming out on PC. And we've got Tell Me Why, coming out on Xbox One and PC. Then on August the 28th we've got Captain Tsubasa, Rise of New Champions, that's PS4, Switch and PC. We've got Jump Force, finally coming to Switch. We've got Madden NFL 21, that's PS4, Xbox One, Stadia and PC. We've got Project Cars 3 on PS4, Xbox One and PC. We've got Shing coming out on PS4, Switch and PC. And finally on August the 28th we've got Wasteland 3 on PS4, Xbox One and PC. Well that's it for this week's episode and if you want to get involved in the show then contact me through patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments and your video game stories, I'm always interested in hearing from you. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Instagram so search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in that conversation. Well thanks so much for listening and for more This Week in Video Games content like this subscribe on YouTube and share with a friend. To join our community, check out the Discord link in the description, and you can follow me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out these other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you soon.